Hello and welcome to Wonderful. I'm David Pearl, the founder of Street Wisdom, and this is a podcast we've designed for anyone who wants to get some inspiration on the go. Today, a lot of us are listening to podcasts while we walk. Wonderful is a podcast designed specifically for that, a podcast to walk to, something to put a bit of wonder in your wonder. You're welcome to listen to this as you wander around your home or lying on the sofa even, you'll find inspiration is actually everywhere. But if you've got a bit of time, and let's face it, we've all got a bit of time, let's boot up and head out into the street. So welcome wanderers, welcome back. Well, I, maybe I should, I should explain, I'm back. I've been away in the mountains on a, a cycling through the mountains. Um, and that's interesting because I discovered in the mountains, there's ups and there's downs, <laughs> effectively. Not very much in the Middle East stuff, not in the, the Southern Alps anyway. And um, when you're going up, it's mostly pain. When you're coming down, it's mostly terror from my point of view. Um, so it's very nice. It was lovely, but it's very, very nice to be back here on terra firma. That's my feet on the, on the, on the firm ground. Did you miss me, Andrew? Andrew, you don't know this, listeners, but Andrew watches me when I'm doing these. He's watching me on, on the, from afar on his phone, on my phone. He, he's saying he missed me, but he clearly didn't. But anyway, I miss you. I miss you, fellow wanderers. And I look forward to having a gorgeously inspiring experience with you on this episode of Wonderful. So, who have I got for you today? I've got the amazing truly amazing, Edmund Ford, the Panamanian-American baritone, Edmund Ford, uh, who is a bit of an opera star, and he's sung all over the world. And in case you don't know the opera world, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, it's a bit like, I don't know, I don't think there's a sporting equivalent, but it's really hard to do that, and to do it the way he does it with verve and panache and great beauty. And, um, but he didn't stop there. Enman. No, he did not. He, he's one of these people. He's a producer, he's a writer, he's a composer. even worked as a senior executive in um, the, the music biz, in marketing. He's one of, those, one of those people that learns what needs to be done in order to do it. Amazing. And um, I met, well, I was introduced to Enman by a mutual friend of ours, Fiona, the lovely Fiona Finsbury, who was singing with him was about to sing with him in a show called Orpheus that he composed and wrote and was starring in, which was a kind of hip-hop opera, hip-opera, drum and bass inspired retelling of the Orpheus myth. And we speak a bit about that in the podcast and how it was very sadly um, delayed, hopefully delayed, and will reappear, but it was delayed by coronavirus. But that didn't stop Enman, he's one of those kind of unstoppable people, and we, we talk a, a bit about that, and we talk a bit about what drives him, and a bit about how he went from playing piano age three to being a opera star. Um, and during my conversation with him, you may notice that I gush a bit. Uh, Andrew says it was fawning. I'm calling it gushing, and I make no apology, Andrew, to the, about that. He's, um, we all have our thing. Some of us are starstruck by sports people or pop people or 
politicians. Andrew's struck, I'm sure, starstruck by local politicians. But for me, it's opera. Since I was a kiddie, I've been sort of in love with opera and always felt opera singers, uh, you know, people I sang with as a kid and sung with, there's sort of something special about them. And so um, when you meet someone that can do all that Enman can do and sings like a god as well, I think I'm entitled to be starstruck. Okay, Andrew, and I hope you will. <laughs> I hope you all will be too. So, without further ado, let's saunter on and uh, drop into a conversation with the amazing Edmund Ford. But, but what is the? What would be your answer, though? You know, what is the for you the 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 toughest thing about being an artist? I'm not generally somebody who talks a lot about process stuff, like sort of the artistic process or like the variety of actors on actors. Like I'm not really that person generally. However, the reason for that is that so much of what I do as an artist and from, from the jump, from the beginning, so much of what I have done as an artist is a function of practical necessity. <laughs> so doing a lot of different things generally came up because Put bluntly, I had a bill to pay and I figured out a way to do it because somebody offered, what's that Richard Branson thing of if somebody offers you a fantastic opportunity, say yes and figure it out later. Mm. So much of what I have done in life creatively, artistically has been, well, here's a thing. I don't know if I can really do it. I know I can at least fake it for the first 15 minutes before they find out that I'm mm. trying to figure it out as I go along. Mm. And then it has progressed from there into now I'm doing this thing. So writing was that way for me. Um, even though it was a natural offshoot of being a pianist and coming up with melodies and just being in music and music starting to form inside my head as opposed to just on a page of Beethoven or Schubert or whatever. It was a it started to happen because there was an opportunity. And I said, Oh, okay, well, let me just write something. And then I started writing. Um, without really a conscious effort to employ what I'd learned about music from having studied other people's music. I just started the process. And a lot of what has happened for me as an artist has come from that mindset. So in a very roundabout way to say, being an artist isn't really difficult or being creative isn't really difficult. I think the difficulty comes in trying to make the learning curve for new avenues of art and creativity as short as possible because I don't like not being able to just do what I want to do creatively or artistically. So back in the day when I was learning how to sing and really getting my technique together, I didn't like not being able to hit that high note the way I wanted to, or sing that phrase the way I wanted to, or have my voice project the way I wanted to, or have it be as soft as I wanted, to, wanted it to be. Those things were difficult because I couldn't do them the way I wanted to. And once I figured out a way to be able to do it the way that I had the way I'd envisioned in my mind, it stopped being difficult and started becoming something I had to work on to maintain, but not necessarily tough. It wasn't necessarily hard to do. Um, so I think difficulty for me, at least as an artist, comes mostly in if I'm trying to get from A to B and there's something in between A to B, getting the thing in between out of the way. <laughs> Which you just described drama, of course. But but yeah, <laughs> right. I love that. You know, there's a kind of, would it be... I mean, in a way, it's a kind of divine impatience. You know, you're impatient to move on, but it isn't, 
because you is it that you can hear and see and imagine it and you want it to happen and you just you're impatient to get the thing out there so you learn it to make it happen kind of i mean i will tell on myself i really and i'm trying to think of a word that is extreme enough <laughs> to really define what i want to say i detest inconvenience oh i detest i loathe i abhor inconvenience the thought that i just like i said if i want to get from a to b and there's something particularly something avoidable i mean there's always something but yeah. something reasonably avoidable between a and b and i can't get to b i i now huge things major things catastrophes all of that take it in stride i'm pretty sanguine about it stuff that's avoidable but just gets in the way for no reason i i i'm ready to go to arms and you know start the crusades all over again so i mean it, it in a sense, it's part of that. It's if I know that I can, for instance, if I know I can sing, let's say, a certain aria by Verdi, by Giuseppe Verdi, and there's a, a similar aria by the same composer in a different opera that I think, oh, I want to sing that too. If there's anything in that second aria that doesn't feel as comfortable as in the first one, and it's the same composer in the same style and basically the same vocal range, I'm like, well, why? There's yeah. no real reason for this. Yeah, and yeah. so extrapolating from that into anything else, if there's something that I feel like, oh, well, within, like I said before about the learning curve, if there's, if there's a reasonable amount of time I think it should take to be able to get from one point to another, and there's something in the way, I don't really have a lot of patience for that thing in the way. Because again, the practical nature of so much of what I've had to do as an artist is I have a deadline, I have a target date, I have, tar I have target goals that have to be hit or whatever, there's a certain amount of structure to it. And if that thing gets in the way and messes with my structure, I'm like, you need to move. I don't have time for this. <laughs> you got you to gotta go someplace else. So it's it, it's kind of that, truth told. It's amazing. Yeah, you're, you remind me that the word patience is uh, comes from the root Patience to suffer, right? So, so mm -hmm. in a sense, patience is. Someone described it nicely to me as sitting in discomfort, and in my sense, is that's not what you're. <laughs> <laughs> not my forte. That's not your thing, <laughs> baby. Right. Well, I but guess it depends. Yeah. No. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, no. I, I guess it depends because I'm all like I said. I'm, I'm. I tend to be very practical about a lot of things, and also very even about a lot of things. So if I see that there's if I see that there's something quote unquote in the way, or if there's a challenge or a hurdle, or if there's simply something that's going to take time to evolve to what it needs to be or to what I want it to be, I'm good because I can sort of see the path. I can see the road. I'm not really a process oriented person as much as a result oriented person. But as long as I can see, I guess, goalposts or like stages of intended stages being hit within a reasonable amount of time along the pathway of a thing, I'm good because I can, I'm again, like I said, I'm sanguine enough to be able to see the 30,000 foot view and say, well, clearly I'm not going to get there tomorrow. So, okay, I'll just dive in. I hate this term, but lean into the process <laughs> and just yeah, yeah. go with it. Um, when I'm leaning into the process and stuff comes up for no reason. Yeah, that's a problem. You're a rare animal, it seems to me, and I've been, you know, I've been in the arts all my life, as you have. Um, 
you described, you know, how a little bit of frustration, well, I, you know, or rather practical, as I get it, practicality means if I need to produce, I'll produce. If I need to mm. compose, well, I hear these tunes in my head, I'll compose. It, you know, it's rare you even hear people say that, and it's even rarer that they do it. Um, it and also, you, in the art world, arts world, people seem to also like their... Their, their titles, you know, oh, no, no, I'm a, I'm a singer. I don't do the, uh, I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I don't do production. But, um, but you don't seem to, you seem to uh, both uh, um, occupy those roles and seem happy about it. Is that right? I mean, do you, you talk about having worked in business and on the stage and so on and so forth. Is that all Enman? Or if you could take away those roles, would there be one thing that, that you'd be doing full time? I think, just by the function of the fact that I've done it, it's all in there somewhere. I do, I was, it was funny, I was talking with a dear friend of mine about this last week. If the one thing I thought I wanted to do had worked out the way I thought I wanted it to work out, I probably would never have progressed to most of the other stuff I've ever done because there would have been no need to. The fact that that thing went okay <laughs> and then before it progressed to the point I wanted it to progress to, other things came up that offered other opportunities that were either interesting or lucrative or both. Again, I guess it's that word keeps coming back, the practical nature of this is what life is right now. So I can Mm. either stick with this one thing and just keep hammering away at it and trying to force it into something else, or I can simply do all of these things, which are presenting themselves as opportunities and see where they go. And I think whether it's business stuff or consulting or the corporate jobs or writing, producing, whatever they are, I tend to think it's all me. So why not do it? And also, and this sounds kind of esoteric, but it really does tie in for a lot of artists that I've known. There is, and I don't know if it's a false modesty or just a fear or what there is this reticence to see themselves, whether it's to hear themselves on a recording or to see themselves on video, they just don't like it. And it's it turns into a whole thing when someone says, oh, well, here's this video of you. And they're like, oh, I don't want to see it. Or, ah. I'm not that person. I'm just the opposite. I want to see what I did <laughs> so mm-hmm. I can know if I want to continue doing it. And very early on from you know age 11, 12, 13, 14, when I was doing recitals, and of course, my dear parents recorded everything they possibly could. (laughs) And I watched it because there was no reason not to. I, I was never, I was never taught or it was never downloaded into me that that was something to be reticent about. So I would just watch it and listen, and I would take it into my teacher and say, Hey, I like this. I don't like that. What can we do? And that was me at 11. (laughs) Like, I like this. I don't like that. Um, because I was always thinking in terms of as an audience member, what would I want to see here, experience, feel, et cetera. And because I was watching the video, I very early on saw myself as an audi- from the perspective of an audience member, as opposed to from the perspective of an artist who's just getting nervous about what he may have done. Wow. Fast forward to when other things started to come in, I didn't have any self-consciousness about, well, now I'm going to do business. Well, now I'm going to write. Well, now I'm going to whatever, because I just wasn't self-conscious about I wasn't self-conscious about taking any up to that point unfamiliar avenue because it had all been to a certain extent unfamiliar avenues, but because I knew 
basically what my learning curve was from being able to understand those avenues by having seen myself do it, whether it's listening to myself on recording, whether it's watching myself on videos, whether it's seeing photos of myself, if I were doing something that was like for three and a half seconds, I was a fitness model and I was able to see what that looked like and know, first of all, I didn't want to do it, but also know what angles were. So when it came time to do video, do film, do photo shoots, I knew what that was all about. And I wasn't as nervous about it just because I had done it. And I knew what I looked like, sounded like doing it. And I think the absence of that sort of, I guess, self-consciousness is really the best word about it. The absence of the nervousness about how do I come across just cleaned out all of the I guess the intellectual, emotional, psychological baggage about what it would be like to do something different. Is there anything, was there a moment when you were a kid when the kind of the penny dropped? Uh, do you remember a moment of going, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to be a performer or has that just always been in your in It's your always life? been sort of on the page, as it were. Yeah. I know I, it started off, piano just because we had a toy piano and banging on the toy piano and then <laughs> driving a bit on nuts i'm sure oh my gosh well it was it was all cool for a while and then my parents said we need to send you across the street to this lovely woman who teaches piano because the banging is going to have to stop <laughs> enough with the banging. I, for real i really do not blame them for that because i would i would have had to jump in sooner than that but um because there was an appreciation of music and my mom mm -hmm. played piano and sang and actually had a lovely voice and my dad sang and played some piano. So there was an appreciation of it. So in that sense, I never, there was never any sort of a disconnection between this is what I want to do. And this is what people think I should do. It was all fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause you know, my brother had sports and some other stuff and I had very much less sports because <laughs> I didn't like getting tackled. And then I had the creative thing. So we all had our thing and music was mine. So it was always encouraged. And it was always the sort of thing where if you do it, just make sure you just do it. Don't kind of halfway do it, just do it. And it was a, it was a sort of a mentally focusing thing for me. It mm. provided a, it required a certain amount of discipline, which was sort of, I guess, laterally transferable to other things. And so my parents saw the benefit in that. And aside from just the fact that I liked it, they really encouraged it. Um, moving from sort of being a kid and moving on, I, like being in church, obviously singing in church. And it was one of those, it was one of those takes a village. It's all a village. Everybody's your aunt, uncle, parent, sibling kind of situations where if the person who was supposed to play organ that day didn't show up, it may get up. And there was no time to think about it between him and get up to the organ and, but I don't, but what was the, I don't know what the music, but it, there was none of that. <laughs> it was just like, you're wasting time because, you know, it's, we Presbyterians and we run on a schedule. You need to get up and sit down at the organ, <laughs> which, which was great because it, it, I had no time again, I had no time to be, I had no time to sit and think about what could go wrong when I sat up to the organ. Number one, cause I knew they loved me. And if I hit the wrong note, nobody cared. Yeah. And number two, because there was no time to think about it. It's like the, the hymns need to be sung now. So get up, which was the best, most wonderful, most fantastic introduction to the practical side of being a musician that yeah. I think I could ever have had. Yeah, yeah. And as time progressed, that never changed. And also yeah. because my family was all is all STEM folks. So it's mm -hmm. all 
you know, law degrees and economics degrees and medicine and <laughs> mathematical engineering and all of that, there is this very sort of, yeah. this is the way it is, uh -huh. realistic way of approaching things, mm. which, whereas it does not preclude emotion, certainly, it the for, the go-to response to things isn't to be a quote-unquote temperamental artist. Mm. The go-to response to things is what is it? Mm. <laughs> and let's deal with it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. So because I now know what I sound like in a lot of different situations on a good day, on a bad day, on a day mm. when I'm getting laryngitis, on a day when I woke up and didn't even need to wake up because everything was magically working perfectly, like I know what all of that is. Mm. So there's no, I don't have any, I don't have, let, let me not say I don't have any hangups. I'd love to be able to say that, but let's keep mm. it real. I have mm. very, very few hangups mm. <laughs> about yeah. if I see, if I hear a recording or see a video and I think, oh, that wasn't what I wanted it to be. Okay. <laughs> because in context, so like I've been doing it long enough to know that there will be days like that. And sure. fortunately, most of those days are not recorded. So <laughs> <laughs> just kind of going about my business. Yeah, that's so that's that's so interesting. Well, I think you're rare uh, to be both so passionate about your art, but also have that sounds like a, a, a kind of a healthy distance and, and a sense of a sense of grounding. When I when I was a kid, I, I was very very starstruck and very very excited about opera. I fell into singing when I was eight, and I was singing mm. at Covent Garden just through a series is always luck right and there was a lucky mm. thing and something happened and i didn't know any different i just thought that's what kids did and so <laughs> for four years i was singing at the garden did all the little boy parts and so on and i um i remember this this disconnect or the disparity where the audience thought the singers were thinking high thoughts and um, <laughs> the singers were thinking about their, uh, you know, very humdrum things. I remember being in a crowd scene in La Sonambula. And, uh, and, and, you know, even at the age of eight, I was, I was sort of doing uh, the method. You know, how could I, where have I come from? And what, you know, where, what's my you know, and around I me, there were, these, there were these grown-up singers saying, uh, I, I saw a great ad for cheap uh, car insurance. I, I, I was there with the, it's like, what's going on here? And also, I remember a bit later, later in life, when I was being I was, as part of an interview, that the, the Classic FM used to record dinner parties with artistic people, and as part of a program, mm. uh, well, that was the program. And uh, there was a presenter called Humphrey Burton, who was a you know, he was a, a an eminent kind of commentator about the arts and Barbara Bonney was one of the guests there was a few of us sitting around and um she um he said ah oh, but Barbara you know when you do the rose scene from Rose and Cavalier which if you don't know it listeners let's go and listen to it it's heavenly music the presentation mm. of the rose and it's just this limpid soaring silver soprano sound that also Barbara Bonney was one of the great Octavians Oh, you must be thinking about, you know, the higher, you know, the highest things and Strauss and transformation. She said, no, she said, Humphrey, I, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm at the Met, I'm thinking this house is way too big for my voice. I'm going to have to not speak for three <laughs> weeks after this show. It's like that, that very, that very healthy, actually down to earthness that runs through our business as well. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's. One of the one of the other corporate iterations of my life when I worked at a um, at a Universal Music Group, I was a vice president there in New York for a couple of years, and I remember talking with one of the um, heads of marketing, 
because my background, my degrees in marketing as well. And I remember we were talking about different artists because we were dealing with some folks who didn't like to do social media. And of course, it's I don't know how somebody would have a career in popular music these days without (laughs) being on social media. So we were trying to find all these different ways of sort of introducing them to what they would be able to do that was organic for them in social media. And we found a couple of things and it was great. And after one of our meetings, I stayed behind. I said, look, let me ask you something. Have you ever worked with, because she'd worked with everybody. I said, have you ever worked with an artist who was marginally sane? (laughs) Or are they all a little crazy? And I'm talking about successful, everybody knows who they are, Billboard Hot 100, those folks. And she said, no, I have not. She said, now I've worked with some people who were pleasant, who were nice, who were cool. But she said, they all have a twinge of crazy. Mm. And I don't know if she was just having a bad day when she said it. But when I think back on people I've worked with directly, who were extremely well-known, who were extremely Mm -hmm. successful, extremely popular, Mm -hmm. yada, yada, not just in music, because I'm not going to say this is all just a music slash creative Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. thing. A lot of people are what I would call left of center. Mm -hmm. Like they don't quite drive their cars down the center of the lane. Mm -hmm. There's something a little sideways about it and not necessarily bad Mm -hmm. and not like pathological, but there is something about them that's not entirely what many would consider to be quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes that manifests itself in ways that you're like, oh, that just means you can think outside the box. And no wonder you came up with that fantastic idea. No wonder you thought about things like that. Nah. Or no wonder on stage you go to that, as we call it, zone where other people that takes other people along with you because they don't naturally organically go there, but you do. And it's a whole thing. Or it can manifest itself as you need medication because Mm. you're not really firing on the same cylinders (laughs) that Mm, most mm. humans do. Mm. Either way, that person can become incredibly successful. And part of that is a lot of people believe, and not incorrectly, that if they don't visibly project some of that, that they will be taken for granted, that they won't be considered creative, that they won't be considered true artists, that they won't be considered whatever all of that is. And Mm. if you're not that, or if you just happen to be a less, Mm. I'm not a Zodiac person, but people people who are in the Zodiac are always talking about, oh, this one's crazy, that one's normal, that one's whatever. (laughs) If you're not whatever that quote unquote sign is, then you kind of have to fake it. Mm. And because I have never wanted to expend energy in that direction because <laughs> I've mm-hmm. only got so much energy. Mm-hmm. It, I end up observing a lot. Yeah. And what I see is, and I'm trying to put this in a way that is non-judgmental. What I see mm-hmm. is that for a number of reasons, many of which have nothing to do with what somebody's organic nature is, a lot of people end up being that. They mm-hmm. end up being sideways. They end up being a little crazy acting. They end mm-hmm. up being whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's fascinating to see how that affects all the sorts of things we're talking about. Like, how mm-hmm. does that affect their output? How does that how does that affect when they have to hit a deadline? When I see people talking about writer's block and, oh, well, what happens when you have to compose something? And where do you get your ideas from? I have no idea. <laughs> I, just, I don't know. 
I mean, it's just, the deadline it helps. You know, exactly. It kind of, and, and it really, for me, a deadline's great. Because if I know I need to finish something by September 15th, <laughs> September 15th is when it needs to be finished. <laughs> great. But, and I mean, obviously we pull inspiration from wherever we can, but it's yeah. just a lot of, it's a lot. I mean, especially nowadays when being an artist means nothing like it did before. And mm. the way that digital platforms have democratized artistic output and expression and distribution, most mm. importantly, mm. in a way it's great because everybody can get their stuff heard by somebody. In another way, it's, I guess, daunting in a, for some folks because it shows just how many insanely talented people there are out there in the world who've never had a chance to be heard, seen, focused upon, paid attention to. So it's, it's, an, it's a very interesting time. Yeah. And 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 Orpheus for you had a great linear uh, plot progression, right? It did. I feel like it's not always the case, but with simpler stories mm -hmm. that are easy to encapsulate, the emotional impact tends to be stronger for me. Mm -hmm. So if I have like it's like I said earlier, I have only a certain amount of energy. And when it comes to watching a show, reading a book, watching a movie, whatever, listening to a recording, I have only a certain amount of focus. So if somebody wants to, if somebody wants to engage my focus, let's say 60%, trying to figure out what's going on, then that means the 40% that's left is all you got to be able to connect <laughs> with me long enough to want to actually see the show. Um, <laughs> And that's not even talking about how long does it take you to get to the point? How long does it take you to introduce the conflict? Like all of the basic mm. narrative structure stuff. Um, and Orpheus is exactly the opposite of that. Like the story. And I remember reading a translation of the Ovid way back in, I think it was AP English back in freshman year in high school. And it was a, a really, really good translation of the entire metamorphosis. And going through the entire thing, I thought, these stories are fantastic. Oh, my gosh, this is wonderful. He came up with this before. And and because they are the source, that book is the source of so many other stories, we, of course, picked up this relates to this, this relates to that movie, this relates to that series, whatever. Out of all those fantastic storytelling segments, the one that stuck out to me was Orpheus. Mm. <laughs> and I think it had to do with, it was so simple. <laughs> it, it was presented so simply. And... I guess what ended up being archetypes were so clear that there was no misunderstanding. He met this woman. He loved this woman. She loved him. They were together. This thing happened. He tried to work it out. It didn't work. She turned around because she didn't understand. It, like nobody in the story is 100% evil. Yeah. And I'm a big, especially for character development, I'm, a, I'm really big on nobody is 100% one thing. Yeah. So because the characters were so simply drawn, when it comes to an adaptation, it would be very easy to add things, subtract things that would help to create more complexity, more, I guess, emotional diversity in how they're presented. And when it came time to actually work on Orpheus, the idea for the type of music genre came first. So I was just writing tracks that sounded a certain way. And then when I stumbled again on Orpheus, I think it was... Must have been six or seven years ago, and I actually stumbled again on the story for something else. Um, 
I think it was a, a number of places we're doing in the States, we're doing productions of, or just for some reason, we're doing a lot of stuff related to Orpheus and Eurydice, the story. And that came back to my mind. I said, you know what, this would be a wonderful sort of, I guess, binding element for these, all these tracks I'm writing for this genre to simply put it all under the umbrella of, and in the service of this particular story, whether that's the instrumental interludes, whether that's the vocal music, the tracks, whatever. And it just became this lightning rod for all of the ideas I had for this particular genre of music that I was writing. I love that. And it just ended up working out. And then once that was all, once I had enough of those tracks ready to put together a decent website and some demos and a whole list of like basically the information about the show, I sent it off to a few people just to see what would happen. Cause I said, if I don't do this, then a year from now, I'll be annoyed that I didn't do it. And <laughs> knowing how I feel about being annoyed about stuff that could have been avoided, let me go on and send this. Um, and one of the people to whom I sent it was a dear friend with whom we, Ed, Charles Randolph Wright, who was the director of Motown and Greenleaf and yeah. is about to do a show on Broadway. I mean, he's done everything and been everywhere. And I knew that he was somebody who would get it because he's also a musician and a choreographer and all the, and a writer. And when he, when he got the link, he wrote me back like five hours later, like we're doing this. We've been looking for something to do together forever. And he said, yeah, we're doing this. And from him <laughs> that led to when he went to London, I think a few months later, he introduced me to Kwame Kweyama over at the Young Vic theater. And then Kwame heard <clears throat> one track and said, yes, <laughs> We're doing this and let's find a date. And I said, thank you, Kwame. Appreciate it. Um, so it really was like Charles was sort of, again, talking of binding agents. He was the one connecting me to the young Vic, to Kwame, to that whole world. Beautiful. And fortunately, Kwame really got it. He said, you know, we're all about sort of not even really melding genres, but smashing them. So yeah. doing a regular opera, like a regular production of Don Giovanni done however creatively they would do it. Mm. At the Young Vic, probably not. Yeah, yeah. But this, which is opera plus house music plus a foundational, as he calls it, foundational story mm. that's been changed in some ways. Like I had to give Eurydice some more stuff to do because I was like, it's twenty twenty one. We can't just have her. <laughs> we can't just have her running around stepping on snakes and dying. Like we got to give her something else to do. But I mean, it, and also because it just makes the story stronger and being able to keep the basic outline of the story, the basic tenets of the of the narrative, but make some changes to it just essentially based on how I felt it because the music prompts a certain kind of response. So certain things need to be adjusted, although not so crazily that you can't recognize the original story. Mm. It all came together that way. And then both Charles and Kwame were familiar with um, Oswald Botank, who by the way, has been my favorite designer and textile manipulator for I don't know how long. So when they said <laughs> they were going to call him, I was like, let me tell you what I'd love you to do. <laughs> let me tell you what I'd really like you to do. I'd like you to get him to do costumes for the show. And then when he signed on and I met him, I just said, you know what? This is, oh, this is too much. I mean, as far as when the show was put on hold, I think we were two and a half weeks in and there had already been like news, obviously, we already knew about COVID. There were news reports, and they'd had some cases, I think, at the Young Vic in the show that was going on just before ours and had decided to shut that. I think they had shut that show down early. Mm -hmm. And then, so we saw the writing on the wall. Like we knew mm -hmm. something was going to happen at some point. Mm -hmm. So we were, let's just say it wasn't a surprise. 
Mm. Certainly wasn't pleasant, but mm. it wasn't a surprise. And I th- and of course, Kwame assured us that there would be future dates in mind. We just have to wait and see how things go. And we've been talking about that as well. So it does it does have a life <laughs> after that original production yeah. production period. It's it's. Um, I wanted to, as you're talking, as almost I want to freeze frame. Um, you know, on that moment where you get these yeses, this doesn't happen a lot in the art in the arts world. At least, at least not. Mm-hmm. You know, there. I don't know. Maybe if you're Stevie Wonder or something, it it does <laughs> or, or whatever. But I mean, um, it can be as a friend of mine puts it. Um, you know, the the art, the theatre is all heart and no heart. It's kind of both <laughs> full of full of big hearted, generous activity, but also it can be really uh, painful. And mm. and um, this idea, you know, again, you know, the fanboy gets Oswald Boateng to say, "Yeah, I'll do your do," which I believe is the first and the only theatrical production he had agreed to do. Right. Right. And right. that must have felt like Cinderella. You will go to the ball, and then. Hard on the heels comes this big cloud, and it's very dramatic. <laughs> and, and I just salute you. To, I mean, I begin to wonder, having spent a bit of time now with you, I, I'm understanding a bit how you survive and deal with this kind of, it's more than a small inconvenience. Did you look at it and go, okay, well, pragmatically, it, what's happening is what's happening, and... Um, we, I, I'm going to adjust and let let go of what I thought was going to happen, not and not suffer too much. And I mean, how was it for you? It was. <clears throat> well, it's interesting. Charles had actually said um, around the not too long after we got back to New York because we came back on the same flight. Mm. He said, "You know, it's happening to everybody. Mm. It's not as though some sort of horrific thing came through and swept through the Young Vic and destroyed the theater, God yeah, forbid. Yeah, yeah. This is happening to everybody at the same time. So mm. in a sense, the whole world is in the same boat. Yeah. And whereas I'm not normally a misery loves company kind of person, mm. and I won't even say that it necessarily ameliorated the disappointment. It was just, like you said, it was a pragmatic aspect of reality that everybody's dealing with this. The whole The whole theater shut down. Yeah, the yeah. whole theater community shut down. Everything shut down. Flights were being canceled. So it wasn't so much, oh my gosh, this is happening to me. It was more just, oh, this is happening, period. Mm-hmm. And that, it sounds like a semantic thing, but for me, it takes it out of the realm of <laughs> the aforementioned hated inconveniences yeah. and puts it in the realm of this is simply life. Okay. So you can either deal with life or you can try not to, but you don't really have a choice because it's life. Like you gotta, (laughs) you you know, I mean, you gotta address it somehow. And if anything, and not not that I was not disappointed because Lord knows I was. Yeah, I'm sure. But it, it, it was the thing that had been so heartening and so the thing of which I was so appreciative from the first day is the investment that everybody in the cast, everybody in the crew, everybody at the Young Vic had in the show and the excitement of showing up to rehearsal every day when people had gotten there early because they just wanted to get there early because they just loved the show. And I, that right there, especially for something that sort of sprung from my head and I never knew originally back in the day anybody else would ever even hear it. And I just mm. thought I was writing f- music for myself. And now it was a thing mm. that was being presented to the world in that kind of platform with the Young Vic, with that level 
mm. of artists and craftspeople and crew and performers and all the rest of it, as invested as they were in it, to see their reaction when Kwame came into the rehearsal room and they knew that he was going to give that announcement. And there were tears and people were sort of sitting down in corners thinking it, that it's sad to say it came from people's disappointment and sorrow. That was the most like if anything would have made me cry in that moment, that would have been it. Because people who were so invested in something that I was blessed to be able to create that connection. It's almost like more of a connection than if I just met them and we gotten along. The fact that they connected with me through something that I made and that they felt so strongly about it that they actually were sad that we had to cancel it. It wasn't just they're losing a job. It wasn't a re- it was like they really loved the music and the story and all the rest of it. That for me was, <clears throat> excuse me, if anything, if I've been able to flip a switch and turn off the pandemic for anything, it would have been just for that, that we mm-hmm. could just go back to having that communal experience of we're all connecting on this certain level. And again, I've, I felt blessed that the connection, the connective material was this thing, was mm. Orpheus. Mm. There's real star quality. I mean, I'm not just, I'm not just saying this. I, I've been thinking about what it means to be a star. I'm thinking about rehearsal. I'm writing a book about that kind of stuff. And I, and I was thinking that in, uh, like you, I've worked around some very starry people. And I think that very often you'll see a combination of things as star quality. One is that you can bring, you've got the chops, you can, you know, the pipes, mm-hmm. and you can, bring, you can bring your game. But then there's people who are willing to learn and do the prep, the hidden work the, that's required to, to make it work for all. And, and not to suddenly find you in a star vehicle, but actually to create something that, that is, as you were describing it, that is a complete work. And also, similar to, I hear it in you that it's a rare thing of you, you've, got, you've got the ability to write a show, but you don't seek to own every note. You, you know, it's somewhere, presumably there's, that's partly because you are bridging classical classical music and house and the improvisational quality of that Mm. there's a bit of that in there yeah you're you're a rare breed my friend oh well thank you thank you i mean it's i think it's also a function of just having spent my whole life in theater and dealing with a lot of tv film stuff narrative works a certain way and story works a certain way and unless i'm going to write a straight up one-man show <laughs> I need like the parts need to be evenly distributed enough so that the audience feels like it's watching the the audience is responding to yeah. a complete yeah n- come back to this word a complete narrative yeah. like as opposed to just a story that was put in place so one person could sing most of the night yeah. there's nothing yes. wrong with a one person show and there's nothing wrong with a a one a mostly one person show with somebody else on stage for 3 minutes that's fine i mean i've done those too <laughs> but <laughs> If the if the purpose is to have a full show, and especially if the cast list has like nine people on it, that's not really the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. write yourself a show where out of ninety minutes you're singing, you know, eighty seven minutes of music. That's not really. That's like, mm, eh. it doesn't it doesn't really flow. Oh dear, wanderers, we could have gone on. In fact, we did. <laughs> we went on and on, like a couple of lovies. Um, 
But I thought that was a great place to leave it on that idea of star quality, star quality. It's, um, it's a quality I do maintain we all have. We all have our star, we all have our inner, inner star. I maintain that, sometimes against a weight of evidence to the contrary, but, but I think it, we've, we've all got it there, we've all got our golden seed. And I think having it is, is, is only part of the game, but actually doing the work, the hidden work, the constant work, um, is really what lets that star quality shine. I remember talking to a friend of mine once who's a jazz pianist, and I loved the way he played, and, and I said, God, I'd love to do what you do. He said, no, you'd have to play the way I play. You wouldn't have to do what I do, because doing what I do involves eight hours a day, every day practicing. So it's that sort of hidden work, and I admire Enman for that. The other thing I really admired him for was the way that he was able to sort of step out of himself and observe himself in a kind of almost a pragmatic way, like he's his own director. And it gave me the idea that I would, of an experience that we could now have in wonderful fashion. We're going to end this podcast with a little experience, a walking experience, so that we can, so that we can get some inspiration on the go. So here's what I'm going to suggest we do for the next 10 minutes. And that is to, wherever you are, and you can do this inside the house as well, Go for a bit of a wander, and as you wander, see if you can imagine stepping sort of out of your skin and going, to, as we call it, going to the balcony. Like, in other words, walk away from yourself and, and take up a position almost like you're in a theatre watching yourself or in a cinema. That's a nice image. And there you are. You're both walking along, but you're watching yourself walk along, like the eye in the sky, following yourself like a like a drone camera. I mean, that's quite a fun thing to do all just by itself. But as you're doing that, take a look at how you look from that angle. And as you look at this person that you are, what do you notice? What do you notice about how this person's walking? About how they're dressed? If you didn't know them, what conclusions would you make about them? Do you enjoy watching that person that is you walking along? Almost imagine, if you like, that you're the star of your own movie. In fact, if that's the way you want to take this, you could also mentally add a bit of sort of film music in the background. Think of a tune you like and put it behind yourself as you're walking. And just notice, notice what you see from the balcony and how that makes you feel as you're walking. So we're going to go to the balcony as they say. Off we go, so stepping out of yourself, taking a look at myself now from up above, a little bit to the right. What's wrong with his hair? Okay, so, how was that? 
for me it was um, it was really interesting. Um, the first thing that happened was I started bossing myself about a bit, like stand up straight, walk straight. It was quite interesting. I could see that I was sort of, my back was curved, which I wasn't feeling, but I could have see it from the camera in the sky. And the next thing that I think happened was a sense, I slowed down and it looked as though um, I was waiting. And when I looked at myself, it looked like a guy that's waiting for something or someone, which was, which was, which was interesting. It was like a movie of watching somebody waiting. And then I thought, well, why don't I put music in like I suggested you'd, you did. And I put in, you know, the first music that came to mind was like a big romantic score, a big kind of 19, you know, chewy 1940s romantic film score. And um, the phrase, what's going to happen next, came to mind. And it just, for that moment, it felt like loads of potential. I just felt like walking, it wasn't just walking along the street. It was like there was a character about to do or discover something really interesting. It's really given me a lot of energy, just, just, just looking at myself from the distance, as it were. Um, how was it for you? We'd love to know. Um, you drop us a line or let us know on Instagram or, I don't know, send a pigeon. Whatever, digital pigeon, our way. Um, I think you've got all the details how to get in touch in the uh, in the notes that Andrew uh, does after we do these episodes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Enman. Thank you, Enman. Really appreciate the time and energy and 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 goodwill you brought to the conversation. And thank you, Wanderers all. You wonderful people. Without you, I'd just be wandering around by myself, waiting for something to happen. But wandering with you is really, really good fun. I look forward to it. The next time we get together, the next episode of Wonderful, to have some inspiration on the go together. But for now, um, until I see you next, have a wonderful time. Hang on a second. Maybe that's you in the distance. I can see you in the distance. Maybe that you're the person I'm waiting for. Hello? Hello? No, maybe it's not you. Maybe it is. You can find out more about these mindful walking techniques at streetwisdom.org, a global non-profit founded by David Pearl. Street Wisdom is an everyday creative practice you use as you walk to help you unblock your mind to find clarity and inspiration. Why not follow us at streetwisdom underscore for free guided in-person and online workshops. You got it. Walking workshops. You can also download our audio guides on Spotify. Just search for Street Wisdom. Happy wandering! <laughs>